Irish. Uh, now, partially, I agree with the Bible believe it, and believe it to be an errand and have a default position that God is all wise and I am not. So, but my question would be for someone, if you were discussing this with someone who didn't believe the Bible or thought the Bible was fallible and inerrant and, you know, make mistakes, maybe the question could arise, why would um, Jacob, but ultimately God, why would he switch up the younger for the older? Why would, would be the motive for, for him doing that? Why would God do that? Romans 9, 14. Actually, let's go even before that. Romans 9, 6 to 18. Romans 9, 6 to 18. Why would God switch the order? And the answer is, according to God's own will, according to God's own pleasure, according to God's own desire, whatever he wants to do. And he does not have to explain himself. And most often he does not explain himself. Sometimes he does, sometimes he does not. But in terms of who he saves and who he rejects, condemns, he does not explain. But he also says it's not on the basis of the goodness in man, whether that's man's will or man's works, man's goodwill, man's good free will, or some grace in man, love in man. Um, saw what they would do, so he did. Yeah, first. saw what they would do, so he he did in response to what they would do. There's nothing like that. Nothing foreseen, nothing that God sees in the future, good in man. Nothing like that. And that doctrine is explained in Romans 9. Also John 6, Ephesians 1, and many other places in the Bible. But Romans 9, 6 but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. The point he makes in this paragraph, verses 6 to 9, because someone has the name Israel in the nation of Israel, it doesn't mean he is a part of the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, the promise fulfilled in him. It doesn't mean that. It, there is a distinction because Abraham not only had Isaac, but before Isaac he had Ishmael. But Ishmael was rejected and Isaac chosen. And also the mother of Isaac was Sarah, she was chosen, but the mother of Ishmael was rejected, Hagar. There, in Abraham's own family, immediate family, a distinction was made by God. Not because of anything that God saw in them or would see in them, but according to God's own will. Now, 10 to 12, or 10 to 13, people might object, well, Abraham had two wives. 
And that's why there's a difference. No. Verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or evil in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In this case, we have one man, Jacob, who has one wife, Rebekah, but she has twins, and the twins before they were born, before they could do anything good or evil, God chose Jacob, the younger of the two, the younger between Jacob, um, Esau was the firstborn, Jacob the secondborn of the twins. And God, in the womb, while they were in the womb, chose Jacob. He loved Jacob, hated Esau. But when people hear this doctrine, that everything depends on God's will, that nothing good in man, currently or foreseen in man, is the basis for God choosing one for salvation and condemning another. When one hears that doctrine, it's easy for the flesh to rise up and accuse God of injustice. Verse 14, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom? He desires. No injustice with God. God, according to his own will, verses 15 and 17, according to his own will, can do whatever he wants. He can have compassion on whomever he wants, and he can condemn whomever he wants. In 15, it's mercy, and in 17, it's condemnation on Pharaoh and the people of Pharaoh. So it doesn't depend on man's will, verse 16. It depends on God's will, verse 18, mercy and hardening. Mercy for those who are saved and hardening for those who are unsaved. However God wants to do it. So that's the answer right there. Whether people like it or not, that's the way it is. And those who hate it, he addresses them in 19 to 24. In 19 to 24, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. All right. Why well, would you say to someone that again would disagree with that and make the thing that Jacob did it because... That's what happened to you. Jacob what? 
that happened to Jacob. Yes. And so he was just carrying on that tradition himself of the younger for the older. Would you have any response to that? Yes, yes. The response would be these passages, but also numerous other examples in the Bible. Cain was the firstborn of Adam and Eve, but Cain was rejected, Abel was elected, correct? In the case of Noah's three sons, um, most likely Japheth was the oldest. We know Ham was the youngest, according to Genesis 9, 24 to 27, and also Genesis 10, 21. Japheth the older and Ham the youngest. So Shem was the middle son. And yet, from Noah, the promises were transferred from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to Abraham. God chose Shem above the rest of them. And in the case of David, wasn't Davis, David the youngest of the brothers? But God elevated him to be the king and to have the messianic kingdom um, named after him, the son of David. He's, Jesus is called the son of David. There's many examples of scripture. So um, we shouldn't think that it was unique. And would you say, the, just speaking in terms to help us understand it, the point of that for God would be that man's boasting is always excluded. Yes. Yes. The point is man's boasting is always Excluded, The glory always goes to God. If faith depends on man's free will, then boasting is included. But if faith is based on God's grace, boasting is excluded. Romans 11, 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's either grace or works. If it's grace, then faith is a gift of God. Romans 3, 27 to 28. Romans 3, 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Boasting is excluded because it's by faith. If it's by faith, then it is by grace. If it's by grace, it's God's grace that he gives to some to have faith to believe in Christ. Right. Also, according to God's will, is 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord let him who boasts boast in the Lord boasting is excluded if it is by our doing if our doing has any part of it but it says in verse 30 1 Corinthians 1:30 but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. His doing is the same as 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. 
God predestined by his doing before the ages to our glory, but others are excluded, verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We are included, they are excluded. Speaking of God's will, James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's his will. Whenever it's his will, he receives glory. If our will has any part of it, however people describe it, then there is glory or boasting in men, oneself and another men. But that's not included in the gospel. There's no boasting in men in the gospel, only boasting in the Lord. Could you also say that all these instances of uh, Cain and Jacob uh, were symbols to point to Christ's teaching of the, the first shall be last and the last first in Mark 10? Yes. 31? Yes. Mark 10, 28 to 31. Please read it. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, for that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Yes. So again... The Old Testament pointed to Christ through that. Yes, yes. In Christ, we have a position. And those who have a worldly position, they are demoted by God in the world to come. That's the rich man and Lazarus too. The rich man had it all here, but nothing in the life to come. Lazarus had nothing here, but everything in the life to come. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Okay, next question. Yes. Okay, uh, in relation to Ishmael and Isaac and then Esau and Jacob, the blessing was salvation for the one and damnation for the other. Yes. But in terms of Ephraim and Manasseh, are we to see that as well with them? And I ask that because of verse 20, where he says, May God bless you like Ephraim and Manasseh. That type of statement is never said of Ishmael and Isaac or Jacob and Esau, right? It's just Jacob and Isaac. So if, in what way then is Ephraim elevated in terms of, uh, of the blessing? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Manasseh is not cursed. So this is a different situation. Manasseh isn't cursed. We might also see that Moses was three years younger than Aaron, yet Moses was a greater figure than Aaron. Aaron had a position at the start of the nation, but Moses had even a greater position, correct? But Aaron was three years older than Moses. But that did not mean Aaron was cursed. Though God elevated Moses above Aaron, uh, uh, Exodus 7, 7. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Exodus 7, 7. 
And Ephraim and Manasseh would be similar to Aaron and Moses, or Moses and Aaron. Even today we say Moses and Aaron. Moses younger than Aaron, Ephraim younger than Manasseh, but all four of them were saved. That's the situation we have with Ephraim and Manasseh. Was there a further element yeah, so, here? So it's not one, one saved and the other cursed. No. They're both believers. So then this would have a relation to their rank in the household of faith. Yes. And in terms of even, I guess, the physical descendants, Ephraim was a greater tribe than the tribe of Manasseh. Yes. He was a, a, a greater uh, in the physical sense. That's true. We have examples. We can mention two of them in one passage. That is, in the book of Numbers, chapter 2, 18 to 21. Numbers 2, 18 to 21. The two elements here, the position of Ephraim at the head of the camp on the western side, and also the number of Ephraim, greater than Manasseh, okay? Both of these are here in Numbers 2, 18 to 21. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of Amihud, and his army, even their numbered men, 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the sons of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Padachzor, and his army, even their numbered men, 32,200. Both the position in the camp arrangement and also the number of their men greater in the case of Ephraim. Also, we see that in Joshua 24, 29 to 31, Joshua 24, 29 to 31, of which tribe was Joshua, the successor to Moses? 24:29. And it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, in, on the north of Mount Gosh. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. But also, there is a spiritual part to this. Remember we said in the exposition of the chapter that Ephraim is sometimes a synonym for Israel. Not only physical Israel, but spiritual Israel. We see this in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, 7 to 9. Jeremiah 31, 7. Spiritual Israel means saved Israel, the remnant, the church, within the nation of Israel and the world. Jeremiah 31, 7. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child, together, a great company. They shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them. 
I will make them walk by the streams, by streams of waters, on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. He means it in the saved spiritual remnant sense. Is Israel, I'm a father to Israel, Ephraim is my firstborn. Okay, next. <coughs> Doctors, this is not in the, I mean, Genesis 48, but connected with what you said. Uh, how, how does a dispensationalist give a good answer to not all Israel is Israel. Yes. Uh, for, for, for one, let, let me give a, a longer answer and, and come back to your question, okay? How does a dispensationalist get away with anything? <laughs> um, the, the, re- the reason is they don't read their Bibles carefully. That's number one. Number two, they don't read the Old Testament carefully. Number three, their preachers, their pastors and scholars, they don't study the Old Testament carefully and preach the Old Testament to their people. Number four, they are consumed with other books. Consumed with other books, extra biblical books, commentaries, preachers, popular preachers, like that. Um, And then number five... They are, in many ways, the Judaizers of the book of Galatians. In many ways, they are the Judaizers of the book of Galatians. They see the book of Galatians in the New Testament, in even Romans, and even Hebrews. These are the three most important interpretive books of the New Testament. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, to explain everything. When I say everything, I mean... Basically everything that we really need to know theologically, they are found in those three New Testament books. So they fail to study those books carefully and deal with the implications of what's written there in all three. So in Galatians 1, 6 to 10, and in Galatians 3, particularly 6 to 29, or the whole chapter, 1 to 29, Galatians 1, 6 to 10, Paul emphatically says that whoever preaches another gospel, which is really not another, is a different gospel, and he is under a curse. Then in chapter 3, he argues that Abraham believed that one gospel. Abraham believed it. But what is that gospel? He explains from verses 10 and following, particularly 10 to 14, the death of Christ. We cannot be saved by our own works. Our sins condemn us. Even one sin condemns us. So we must believe in Jesus Christ. Christ became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us for, from the curse of the law, for he became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that's Galatians 3.13. He says this, 
And why did he do this? 3.14, 3.14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Whatever gospel and blessing Abraham received in Christ Jesus will now come or go to the Gentiles. How else is he supposed to say it to make it clear? That's what he says in 3.14. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Correct? If one doesn't believe, if a person doesn't believe in one gospel from Genesis to Revelation, and that gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising from the dead for our sins in our place as a substitute. If we don't put faith in him, his deity and his perfect humanity. If we don't put faith in him, his virgin birth and his life. If we don't put faith in him, anything we compromise on the person of Christ and the ministry of Christ, if we don't put faith in him, then we're not saved. And it doesn't matter how loudly we say we are Christians. Even the dispensationalist. If the dispensationalist says, no, they believed in something else or someone else in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, and even some of them are more extreme than others, in the book of Revelation 14, 6, and 7, they say the eternal gospel in Revelation 14, 6, and 7 is also a future different gospel. Different from the one we're believing now. They say that, some of them. The more extreme ones will say that. So this is why they don't see it. They don't get it. Now back to your question. Could you restate it? (laughs) How do they justify the statement in the Bible, not all Israel is Israel? Yes. Or how do they talk it away? How do they talk it away? Firstly, they, they have to, if you press them on it, they have to admit that throughout the Old Testament there were many wicked men of Israel, like Ahab and Jezebel. If you press them on it, they have to admit that. Ahab and Jezebel, clear examples. Um, However, they take it to mean in this period. They're not all Israel who are Israel in this period of time in the church age, in the age of grace. However, in the future, God will save, right before the return of Christ, He will save the whole nation of the Jews. At that point, in that period. The whole nation. So all Israel will be Israel at that point. Now that's some of them, but like I said, every dispensationalist in some ways is not the same. In some ways, they are all the same. In other ways, they're different. There's some similarities and differences among them. But some of them being more extreme, they think that every Jew throughout all history is saved. Every Jew throughout all history is saved. We just don't see it now. But eventually, we will see it. They're not all Israel now, but they will be one day all Israel. And that would be the basis for like the Zionism type movements, the the Christian movements that are very pro-Israel, pro-Jew. Yes. Because they're God's people. 
Yes, because they are God's people, not because God made covenants with them and delivered the word to them and the Christ to them, not because of those reasons, but they are God's people in that God has a soft spot in his heart for them and they all will be saved. Many of them take it that way. They all will be saved. And then that's a bridge, actually, for dispensationalism. If all Jews are going to be saved and God can be that merciful to people who are that obstinate, then why can't others be saved? And in fact, in fact, yes, everybody, because um, you, you can check this. People think I, I misrepresent others, but check this. Tony Evans, Tony Evans believes in the trans-dispensationalism in, in trans-dispensationalism. He, God is able to trans-dispensationalize people. That is, just like nobody in the Old Testament believed in the coming death and resurrection of Christ, even so now, throughout the world, nobody has to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ to go to heaven. They don't have to hear the, the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ. For eternal life. They don't have to hear that to be saved. Now, Tony Evans, he's in Dallas, right? And Isn't that where you go? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he's in that, he's in that um, milieu of dispensationalism, which is, it runs rampant there in Dallas-Fort Worth. With the the seminaries and the mega churches, it's all there. It's all there, very strongly there. Yes. It should be pointed out that um, Matt's the one that brought up dispensationalism. Because right. oh. people always claim that you like to bash them. Oh, yes. But Pastor Matt's the one that brought it up. No, he no. Just had to respond, right? Yes, well, uh, thank you for that. I'm try- I know you're trying to take the heat away from me. But. I was placed in the audience. No, no, no. <laughs> no. No, you weren't placed in the audience. I, I put the question in your ear. Yeah. No. No, they'll also say my answer should have been the very opposite. Even if I didn't know you were going to bring it up, they should they would have said that I should have said something uh, uh, contrary, the complete opposite of what I just said. And because I didn't do that, I'm also culpable. The questioner is culpable and the answerer is culpable. That's the way they, they look at it. Because they love their universalism. They love their universalism so much. They can't handle God sending people to hell. Or the vast majority of mankind to hell. They can't handle that. But they're content with you going there. Yes, they're content with me. Yes. Yes. The, the, the only sinner is the one who confronts the sinner. That's the only sinner. In their mind. The, the only one who's committing sin is the one confronting an unrepentant sinner. That's the way they look at it. And Dr. Ishmael, don't you think, too, that so much of this just gets stirred? Again, it goes back to man being able to boast. Man being able to say, we've learned more about God than previous generations knew about God. We've come to this, and now, you know, I just, I just think pride is the root of yes. so much of it. Yes. And so much in theology and academia and church. And, I mean, it is. All of us, you know, in the room. 
It is. Uh, it is. Pride we, is, is the greater sin. Yes. And yes, pride is the root. And like you said, they also often say, and since we're talking about people, let me mention another name, John MacArthur. John MacArthur is on record more than once saying that we know more than the previous generations. We know more than the previous generations in the Bible. So we know more than Abraham. We know more than Moses. We know more than the apostles. We know more. We know more? We know more? Come on. Come on. Moses was there communing with God in the tabernacle, in the most holy place. The the Son, Christ, was there in the most holy place, delivering His Word. That's from Exodus 25, 22. That's what Moses did, and also Exodus chapter 33. So Moses did that. How can we say that? We never had a personal appearance of Christ. We didn't see all of the manifestations of, of Christ in the Old Testament that the many saints did, the Christians of the Old Testament did. And we never saw Christ face to face like the apostles did. We never saw that. So how can they say we know more? In fact, John knew more than what he wrote. So if John knew more, John 21, 25, if he knew more than what he wrote, then how can we say we understand it better than John? That's pompous. That's pompous. Like you said, it's pride. And we can't ever say that. We should never say that. Um, right, and there were, were there things with both the Apostle Paul and John that they were forbidden from things that they saw, like when Paul was caught up in the right. Right. Yes. When John was there where he was told, don't write these things. Yes, yeah. exactly. And the, as you said that, I came here, it says, was caught up, Second Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. That's Paul. He heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So then, if that's the case, doesn't it mean that they knew more than what they wrote? Yes, of course. Yes, they knew more than what they wrote. There's plenty of examples of this. Plenty, plenty of examples. Um, we have, let me, we said that Genesis 48.22, Genesis 48.22, about my sword and my bow. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Rebel rousers. Okay. See you later. Okay. Genesis 48.22, that incident likely it happened, but we didn't know about it until Jacob said it, right? Here's another one. Leviticus 11, Leviticus 11.3. Leviticus 11.3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Is Moses not telling Aaron that God had already said this? And now I'm reminding you. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Aaron, you and your sons had forewarning. Correct? But I challenge anybody. Find this statement anywhere 
chronologically or canonically previous to Leviticus 11.3. Go find it. It's not there. That's proof again that it had been said, though it wasn't written yet. Now it's written when this incident occurs. Here's another one. 1 Chronicles 28.19. 1 Chronicles 28.19. David is charging his son Solomon about building the temple. And he presents to him the plan of the temple. The plan or the diagram, the blueprint of the temple. The pattern of the temple. After listing many of the furniture, pieces of furniture of the temple, he says in verse 19... 1 Chronicles 28, 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. The Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. Everything David understood is not written. But he's saying, God made me understand all the details. Not just the dimensions, the measurements, what pieces of furniture to make, how much gold and silver and wood, not just all that, but everything about it. Made me understand in writing with his hand of all the details of this pattern. But we don't have all the details of the pattern written in the Bible anywhere. It it is complete arrogance for somebody to say, we know more than our predecessors. No doubt about that. And that's evolutionary. That's following the evil religion of evolution because it's evolutionary, not, not just in biology, not just in geology, not just in those fields, but it's evolution in linguistics, it's evolution in, in sociology, it's evolution in theology. That's the way they look at it. And that evolution is called progressive revelation in theology. They call it progressive revelation. Just like in in anthropology and sociology, we are progressing. We used to say one man marries one woman, but now we understand better. It doesn't have to work that way because we're progressing. Progressive anthropology, progressive sociology just like progressive revelation. Just like a man can have a baby now, too. A man can have a baby, yes. Yes. Okay, uh, I, I have a question, Michael. I'm looking for the terms of the best way to like explain or understand this. Um, the purpose of that, like, um, in John 1, right? Um, John 1, verse, uh, verse 9. Yes. There was a true light which... Tell me is the world in my never hand. Then also in 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the, of the only begotten from the Father, mm-hmm. the grace and truth. Yes. And then the same thing too also went on. Hebrews 1, that God had spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days he spoke to us in his son. Yes. And then um, Galatians 4 also. God sent forth his son. Yeah, so what's what's the best way to understand that? Okay, there is, over time, uh, more information 
that is explained and more information or more knowledge explained and written. So there is gradual or progressive inscripturation, but there isn't, uh, and there is progressive experience or progressive experiences, more and more incidents, more and more experiences, more and more interactions with Christ. That is true. But the problem is with dispensationalism and its ancient um, father, Marcion, what they fail to understand is the essential core elements in many details was always present from the Garden of Eden onward. That's what they fail to understand. They think it was absent or mostly absent in the Old Testament and even during the ministry of John the Baptist and Christ and not understood until the day of Pentecost. Nothing was clearly understood for this church age from until the day of Pentecost. From the day of Pentecost onward, now we believe Jesus died and rose again for us. But before the day of Pentecost, people didn't believe that. So they're taking away the core with its many aspects. They're taking away the core and I'm arguing for the core. And I'm also saying, we understand that over time, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they wrote scripture, but they are commentators and emphasizers and repeaters, interpreters of Moses. Moses, in his teaching, he has the whole gospel. Contrary to dispensationalism and New Covenant theology, he preached in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, he preached both our sin and condemnation for our sin because we do not measure up to God's righteous standard in the law, but he also preached the gospel within the pages of the book of Genesis to Deuteronomy in many ways, sometimes more explicitly, sometimes implicitly, sometimes through types and illustrations, sometimes directly. He explained it in many ways from Genesis to Deuteronomy. The core is there. Everything we need to know is there. Even the temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood. It's all there in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's all there. Then from Joshua to Malachi, they are interpreters, commentators, repeaters, emphasizers of the law of Moses. And that's even in the New Testament. However, in the New Testament, we have, not only are they repeaters and commentators, explainers, repeaters of the law of Moses, but they are doing it from the post-incarnational vantage point. Now that Christ has come in person and ministered and also accomplished our redemption by dying and rising again on the cross, they have it um, in that perspective. They have all of it accomplished, and so they have even greater clarity in terms of perception. Greater perceptive clarity after, experiential clarity after the coming of Christ. That's what they have. But what they have is not essentially devoid in the life of Abraham or Moses, anybody else. 
They understood it after the fact. Let me, this question came up a few days ago. Um, remember the, the parable in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. There were two sons. And also remember in Matthew 21, the parable of the two sons. They are different parables, but both illustrate the same. One son got it, the other son did not get it, correct? One son was saved and the other unsaved, correct? Okay, let's look at it this way. The, uh, let, let's say a father, a modern father, tells his two sons, in a month we are going to the circus and we're going to have a wonderful time. We're going to have the experience of our lifetime. Let's say the, the sons are 10 and 11 years old, old enough to understand and remember it and young enough to enjoy through, in the innocence of life the things that they might enjoy at a circus or carnival, okay? We're going to go in a month. But one son is not believing it. He's skeptical about it. No, no, we're not going to have a good time. Quit talking about it, Dad. He, he keeps saying things like that. We're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to have a good time. One son says, no, no, no. While he's there at the circus, he's complaining and griping about everything. Why is the line so long? Why is it so hot? I'm so thirsty. He's griping and complaining the whole time. And then after the circus, whenever he's reporting it to his friends, he, he's always griping. Well, yeah, we went on that, but my dad said it was going to be good, but it didn't turn out to be good. It was really horrible, really bad. Okay, so what's the problem? The problem is in him, right? Okay, okay, the, the dad to the other son says the same words, exact same words to the other son. Before the circus, a month before, he is very excited. He can hardly stop talking about it and in anticipation, talking to his friends. He's very giddy about it. Then when it happens, there at the circus, he's also very thrilled. He's enjoying every, uh, every second of it. And then after the experience, he can't quit talking about it to his friends. He can't quit. In both cases, they had a loving, reliable, honest father. Correct? Should both of them have believed the father? Of course. We're let's say, for the sake of argument, objectively, a circus is a good, wonderful, fun event to attend. Okay. Let's, let's pretend the circus has no unwholesome things to see or do. Let's pretend that. So in that context, if that's the case, wouldn't every family, every child, boy, girl, want to go to a circus? And want, wouldn't every parent want to give that kind of a wonderful experience to their children? Yes, okay? And we have an honest dad, a reliable dad, a loving dad doing this. So one believed it, the other didn't. So throughout history, the one who didn't believe it, before it actually happened, he should have believed it. On what basis? Even though he never experienced it yet, on what basis should he have believed it? The unbelieving son. He had a loving father. He had a loving, honest, trustworthy father. He should have believed it. Then when it happened, should he have believed it when he saw it? Everybody else is happy. Everybody else is enjoying it. Why am I the only one complaining? It never dawned on him. Okay? And then after the event, should he go on and on complaining about it? No. His brother isn't complaining. He didn't thank his dad. He didn't say, thank you, dad. He didn't do anything like that. Right? 
Okay? But that unbelieving son, did he not gradually have more information? He had the content that dad was explaining. You're going to have a blast. You'll never forget this experience. Right? You're going to have fun. Everybody's going to have fun. When you... The dad said it, but he didn't believe it, would not believe it. Then it happened. And during it, he didn't believe it, would not believe it. And after the fact, he did not. But when he experienced it, did he not have more information, more knowledge? And thereby, he should have believed it. Okay? But then the believing son, before he actually went to the circus, the father was explaining. He believed it even if he never saw it. He believed it, and it excited him, prepared him for that day. Correct? Well, isn't that like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi? Right? Isn't that like them? The believing one? They never saw it. And then the apostles, they did see it. And then after the fact, we... We don't see it, but we understand through his word that it has all been accomplished. We see it in the unseen sense, like Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, we 2,000 years after Christ. We don't see Christ the way Abraham saw Christ on the earth, but Abraham had to look to the future without tangibly seeing it. We have to look to the past without tangibly seeing it. So in that sense, there is um, more explained or more experienced, and it holds both parties more, the believing part, more blessed and more rewarded, the unbelieving party more condemned for not believing. Yes? So it's, it's like, who has believed our message? It's a who has the arm of the Lord revealed, uh, like in Isaiah 53. And then... Um, Romans 3, what then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God? Okay, it, yes, it is like that, but you interpret what you just read. Isaiah 53, 1, and Romans... Uh, like in that context, you know, the, the, the promise of the suffering servant, um, there was rampant unbelief mm-hmm. in the Israelites. Yes. Um, they, um, so they had that content, that they had that revelation and knowledge communicated to them, but yet, um, they were still unbelieving. They were still unbelieving. Because un- they had been enlightened spiritually. Yes. Themselves. Yes. Uh, because they had been hardened by the United States, right? Yes. And in all that, just so our un- their unbelief doesn't negate God's faithfulness. In Correct. communicating the promise. Correct. And it- the promise was, was passed. It's like, I, like I was looking at Acts 3 too, when you were talking about Moses. Um, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed, that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successor onward also announced these days. Yes. 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 I, I, guess, I guess my difficulty is like thinking about how like, I'm, I'm imagining like being a part of the remnant, but being a, just an average guy, not, not being like Abraham or Patriarch like Trump, uh-huh. just be a regular individual, um, and being there without the New Testament, and like with the with the history of the church, and like them defining Trinitarianism and the nature of Christ, 
Okay. Okay, first, if we're not a prophet or a patriarch or both in the Old Testament, then if we're just the common man of Israel, would we understand the same? The answer is yes, to the extent that our teachers are teaching us and to the extent that the Holy Spirit regenerates us and illumines us and confirms His teaching to us. The Spirit of Christ did not begin to work from Acts chapter 2 into the, in the hearts of the people. In fact, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets according to 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Spirit was... And the Spirit has to regenerate even individuals, even the common man of Israel, men of Israel would have had to be regenerated by the Spirit. Why? John 3, John 3, 1 to 21, or 2, 23 to, 1, uh, to 3, 21. Jesus confronts Nicodemus with this belief that the Spirit has to, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter or see the kingdom of God, right? One, is, one has to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is uh, Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. John 3, 6 and 8. Nicodemus is confused. He says, how can these things be? And Jesus rebukes him. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Right. So as the teacher of Israel, who should have been teaching the common men of Israel this truth, then if that's all in the Old Testament, according to Christ's own assumption... And even with Nicodemus, Nicodemus doesn't say that was never in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, you should have known it's in the Old Testament. And where so? Many places. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Isaiah 59, 21. Isaiah 44, 1 to 4 or 1 to 5. The Spirit's work is mentioned there. Isaiah 32, 15. The Spirit's work is mentioned not only for the prophets, but also for the common people. Right. His work in redemption or regeneration and sanctification. It is mentioned in many places of the Old Testament. So to the extent that they were under good teaching, teaching the Bible and sound theology, and to the extent that the Spirit was working in their life, they would have understood it. And so when people say, well, I don't see it. It's not clear in the Old Testament. I say, I do see it, and it's very clear to me in the Old Testament. <laughs> really? And the same with the Trinity. You mentioned that part. The Trinity. Um, yes, the councils of the 3rd and 4th century, centuries after the apostles had not yet occurred. But we don't need them. Right. They are helpful, but we don't need them. Because if the Spirit has regenerated an individual... He will see the Trinity in the book of Genesis. Yep. Within Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Spirit of God. Genesis 1-26 and 27. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the earth and the creeping things of the earth. Right? There we have it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Isaiah in several places, mentions all three persons of the Trinity in one verse. All three persons in one verse. Isaiah 11, 2, 
Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 61.1, and also Isaiah 48.16. All three persons of the Trinity in one verse. So, in that way, okay, then when they say, well, it's hard to understand the Trinity, I say, do you understand creation? Some things, but not everything, right? Do you understand the virgin birth of Christ? In some ways, but not in every way. Do you understand the substitutionary death of Christ? Yes, in some ways, but not in every way. Do you understand the resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, how God sustains the world, upholds all things in the world? Do you understand all the miracles of the Bible? Do you understand what heaven will be like? How we will dwell with the Lord forever? Do you understand all these? In part we do. And the part that God holds us responsible to believe, that part we do, but we don't understand everything. I guarantee you, you, nobody understands the pencil that he uses to write. He doesn't understand the paper on which he's writing. He doesn't understand his own hand. He can't even understand his fingertip and his fingernails. Yes, we comprehend some things that we need to, both physically and biblically, spiritually. Yes, we understand. So the Trinity is not very complicated. People make it more complicated than it needs to be. No doubt. Does the Bible call the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, God or Lord, ascribe deity to Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Yes or no? Yes. yes. And then, does the Bible teach that there is one God, only one God, yes. before all time, now, and eternity future? Does it teach there's only one God? Yes. And does the Bible say God is invisible, unseen, spirit? And a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Luke 24, 36 to 39. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Okay. What's your next question? It's not so difficult. It's not so complicated. But Satan puts confusion in our mind, just like he did in Genesis 3. From the very beginning, the first sin. He always confuses us. That which should be clear by the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ, that which should be clear, he makes unclear. And then with the, the unclarity, he causes division, chaos, misery, death, and also universalism. He does all, it all with confusion. Okay, does that help? Yeah, yeah, I was just trying to understand the balance, you know. Yes. Christ being the fullness of the revelation. Yes. Um, and he fully explained the Father. And that was really, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's Yes. Also, though, let's see a couple of scriptures. Well, there's a parallel in Luke, but we'll just read the Matthean version of it. In Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We have three groups here. In Matthew 13, after announcing the parable of the sower, seed and soil, soils, he says in 13, 10 to 17, he has an explanation as to why some see and some don't see. And let's notice three groups here. Three groups. Verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, 
To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again, and I heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In 10 to 15, the deliberate, purposeful um, blinding of the people, right? Then in 16 to 17, but some people are not blind. But in what sense are they not blind or blind? Um, in 10 to 15, the great crowds were blind. They were blind in what sense? They couldn't perceive what God was doing. They didn't see in what sense? Did they not see spiritually or physically? Spiritually. They didn't see spiritually. But they did see physically with their own tangible material eyes, Correct. Okay, they saw physically, but they didn't see spiritually. That's one group. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Which group is that? The one that had believed. The what? The disciples, right? right? The disciples who are asking him in verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? But he says in verse 16, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. How does he mean it there? Do the disciples who are asking him this, do they see physically? Yes, just like the crowds, right? But why is he saying they are blessed in verse 16? They see spiritually. Okay, crowds see physically, but not spiritually. The disciples see physically and spiritually. 17. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see and hear what you hear and did not hear it. In which category are the righteous men who desired to see? They saw spiritually, but not physically. Yes, they saw spiritually, but not physically. Just like that's illustration of the two sons I presented going to the circus. That the prophets and the righteous men of the Old Testament are like the son who eagerly anticipated the coming of the circus. And the prophets eagerly anticipated the coming of Christ. They all wanted to see him physically, but they did see him spiritually. And On occasion, they did see a glimpse of it whenever there was a Christophany. Like we said in Genesis 48, uh, Jacob, Genesis 32, 22-32, he wrestled with Christ who came to him in the form of a man temporarily. 
This is confirmed in Hosea 12, 3-5. Hosea 12, 3-5, where even Hosea says that Jacob wrestled with the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the true God. Um, so, the prophets and righteous men didn't see physically, but saw spiritually. That's the way we are today. Yeah, just one last thing. It's funny because uh, in John 12, Isaiah, he quotes the same thing. Yes. This is unbelief. And at the end of it, he says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke to him. Yes. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. That means Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. After quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and Isaiah 53, 1. Isaiah 6, the vision of the holiness of God in the temple was the holiness of Christ in the temple. And Isaiah 53 was a prophecy of the coming death and resurrection of Christ in Isaiah 53. And so John says, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. And there will be a few translations that try to clarify this like the NIV. The NIV in 41 says, he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. NIV says that. NIV, not yours truly. <laughs> so that means, that means NIV knows what John is asserting. They know what John is asserting. It's not a misinterpretation of John. Yes. So the, the problem then with the people is, or, or the, the problem that most people have is they see the deficiency in the content when the real deficiency is in the people. Right. That's the problem, not the content. But with the dispensationalists, the progressive revelation, the new covenant group, they're saying that the father is, to use your metaphor, is telling the boys they're going to a desert. And then when they get there, they're actually at the surface. Yes. Right? So, and, and it's completely different than anything they ever thought or imagined. Yes. Right? The content is the exact opposite. That, that's a, and so the problem is the content, the revelation. And now we've got this new information. And it's really not a desert. It's actually a circus. Yes. Uh, and then, but that's not the problem. The problem is the people. The problem is the people. Yes, they blame God for um, lack of clear communication in the Bible. So they're blaming God for de- deficiency. Yeah, they're blaspheming God. God would have to be, in their view, the most miserable, lousy, worthless, uh, obnoxious communicator in world history. Because we don't understand anything. It's so unclear, so confusing. Well, two things. They lack accurate knowledge of the Bible, including the New Testament. Including the New Testament. They have lack of accurate knowledge of the Bible. They are all in a cult. All of them are in a cult because they do not have accurate knowledge of the Bible. Therefore, they have inaccurate interpretations of the Bible. This I have seen many times. 
trying to get somebody to sit at the table with an open Bible and read a passage very carefully to see what it actually says. Many people are unwilling to do that. Many are very unwilling to do that. So they don't want accurate knowledge of the Bible, content of the Bible, all the while blaming God for being confusing and lacking clarity and information, when actually the information is there in abundance. I gave them 10,000 precepts of my law, yet they are regarded as a strange thing. Right? Hosea 10, uh, sorry, 8, 10, and 11, where he says that. So, it's a strange thing to them, even though God gave them many precepts to understand and study. That's one problem. The other problem is, they are devoid of the Spirit. Right. The way Jude says it, they are just devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Satan controls them controls their spirit, and therefore they kick and scream. They won't let you talk. They won't sit down calmly with a composed mind to go through a passage to understand what it actually says. They won't do that. They love to rant. They love to rant and spew whatever comes out. So in other words, the Bible's not true. The Bible's not true. They're, they are unbelievers. Right. They are unbelievers. Yeah, we've got more knowledge than what's in here. And we have, yes, we have more knowledge than what's in there. No. The Bible is too clear, and it contradicts their sins, which include selling their own books. Yes. Yes. Their way is better than this way. Their way is better than God's way. Yes, back there. Another thing to go with this, too, is that you even mentioned adoption with uh, Jacob adopting Manasseh and Ephraim. And that's, I mean... Yes. But even more so, I mean, it's a picture, right? Yes. And I feel like Jacob would have done that. And even back to Adam, when God adopted Adam, right? I mean, spiritually speaking, I mean, that's pictured mm-hmm. throughout, I mean, the, all of, with the Old Testament saints. Yes. And they, they would have known that they can't be adopted unless it's through Christ. Yes. So. Yes, through Christ and according to the will of the Father. Not the will, not the will of the Son or the orphan, but it's according to the will of the Father. Especially if the orphan is a baby, a newborn baby, correct? Orphans don't choose their parents. The parents choose them, contrary to their will. <laughs> they didn't ask his permission either. Yes. And that, contrary to the will, is also true. Five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, they are sometimes adopted contrary to their will. They don't like it. They hate it. And yet they don't have a choice in the matter. There goes free will. There is no free will. Okay. If there's nothing more, is there anything more? I was going to mention one more thing. Uh, you know, with what Tanner was saying, uh, even after the councils of the third and fourth century, yes. there's still not monolithic belief in the Christian churches concerning the Trinity, the nature of Christ. There's still deviants that are here and there. Okay, yes. So even though there's new terminology and uh, those doctrines are codified in those ways, there's still, you know, I, I had a met just recently with a man who claims to be a Christian, but he denies the Trinity. Correct. 
Correct. Even after all the councils of the third and fourth centuries and subsequent ones, there's still much confusion. And if even if you ask any average member of a local church, whatever denomination, they won't understand. They won't be able to tell you if they believe the Trinity and why they believe it, if they do say they believe it. They won't be able to prove it. And even when they do explain it, they might explain it wrongly. Most often, they will explain it in a modalistic sense or Sibelian sense, named after Sibelius. Modalistic Sibelian sense. Or they will explain it in an Arian sense, named after Arius, uh, one of the heretics and one of the reasons why those early councils were necessary. So they will explain it usually in those ways, but not in the correct way. And we're talking about churches that say on paper that they believe in the Trinity. But the people in many of the pastors don't even understand the Trinity in the orthodox, biblical, sound way. They don't understand it. So, yes, even with all the explanations, many people don't get it. They don't get it. So it's not so much lack of knowledge or information in the Bible. The problem resides in the people. They lack the knowledge, correct knowledge of the Bible, and they lack the Holy Spirit. That's why they say, well, it's it's not clear to me. I don't believe it. It's okay for you, but not for me. They, they say it, but I've, I've met many of these people. They won't sit down with a composed mind with a Bible at the table and go through verse after verse. They are so agitated. They are so filled with fanaticism. They, they want to have you listen to their tirade. Right. Really, that's what they want you to do. So... It being in the Bible is not enough for them. The Bible actually is a hindrance to their agenda. Really, it is a hindrance to their sinful agenda. The Bible, to the unbeliever, even the professing believer, it's always a hindrance to their sinful agenda. Always. Which is why they always try to discredit it. They discredit it. They ignore it. Like I said with the earlier question... They don't read the Bible. They don't read the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. They don't read it, and they don't preach it. It's a hindrance. It's better to ignore it. In fact, in a recent controversy in our church, there was about 10 hours of discussion with a man. 10 hours among uh, five men. 10 hours of discussion on, in three meetings, a total of 10 hours. I, did I say 10 hours? <laughs> Guess how many scriptures he brought up? Zero. 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 To all five men, zero scriptures in 10 hours. Zero. Do you see what I mean? Complaining about many things, but not bringing the Bible to bear on anything. That's how much he trusts in his pompous human wisdom. And, and he also was on a tirade for 10 hours, doing, 90, not doing 99.89% of the talking. I'm making it up, but it was very high percentage of talking. 
That's just the way they are. They won't listen. Well, and we had another controversy with the pastor as well. And he even stated, I don't have a scripture for every... Yeah, I don't need a scripture. I don't need a, I don't need a scripture for every point. Yes. And he also he consumed... And he consumed hours of our time. Yes, he consumed hours of our time. A pastor said that. 400 hours. What's that? 400. <laughs> yes, a pastor said, and even this man I mentioned, 10 hours of our time, he said the same thing, basically. He said that he doesn't need a scripture for everything. You don't need a scripture for everything. And then he also said, we just look at the scripture differently. And why did the scripture ever come up in the first place? Because I was <laughs> quoting it to him. I kept quoting it to him, and I read a few, uh, a few verses. I kept quoting it and reading a few verses, and he finally just, instead of dealing with the content of what I was quoting or reading, he just said, we just look at it differently. Well, please, sir, offer your alternate explanation in a calm, coherent way. He wouldn't do it. Because the scripture is always an obstacle to the sinful agendas of men. Right. Always. Always. Always an obstacle. And if you preach repentance, then you talk about sin and judgment too much. They don't like that. They don't like that. Actually, that reminds me of Ahab, who said that of Micaiah the prophet. Uh, but I hate him, because he never speaks good of, concerning me, but only evil. Well, only evil because you won't repent. Only evil because you repent. 1 Kings 22, 8. Does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. 1 Kings 22, 8. That's the way people are. Okay, thank you very much. We'll end there.